Raising the Bets is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Raising the Bets. We're a Catholic couple raising five kids outside of Boston. Join us as we share the joys and challenges of marriage, homeschool, our adventures near and far as we make sense of the world and experience the best parts of our culture. I'm Dom Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. So, Melanie, I had a little bit of envy this week, and I don't know if you did too, but um, both of my brothers and all of my brother John's kids (laughs) were in Rome this past week. All but two. What? Dominic and John Paul weren't in Rome. Well, oh, right. Well, yes. Four, four out of six. <laughs> That's right. I guess That's that feels like all. But. That, well, it would be all for us. Uh, yeah. So uh, my brother John's daughter, Catherine, is a student at University of Dallas, and she's doing her Rome semester uh, this semester. And so uh, John and his wife and his son, Joe, and his wife and Peter and their daughter, Teresa, all went over to to see her and spend a week over there in, in Rome. And uh, my brother Bernie and his wife Carol went, and then they had uh, family friends. Chuck and Eileen went. Um, <laughs> did anybody else go? Like, I, every, it was so funny to see their pictures out because they were like this pilgrimage group. <laughs> you know, there's this huge crowd of people. And they were sending back pictures. And for John, I mean, I don't know, this has got to be his 10th visit to Rome or something like that. He's been there so many times. I've been twice. Um, I know you spent a semester in Rome at U- yep, for UD. Like Catherine did. Yep. And then, but this was Bernie's first time. All the others, all the other kids had been, all the Jones kids have been before. Um, had Teresa been? I don't know if she had. Uh, maybe she went, oh, maybe did she go on a school trip? She might have went on a school trip, I think. Uh, obviously, John Paul has gone. I'm pointing at the picture of my nephew, John Paul, at two or three years old being embraced by Pope St. John Paul II, which was a photo that was on the newspapers of Europe the day after it happened because it was the Pope's 80th birthday. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but that was before. So they all got to go and there was these amazing pictures and Bernie got to experience uh, Rome for the first time and just to see it through his eyes. uh, Bernie's my older brother. uh, He's my oldest brother. And to see it through his eyes and just, it was awesome. And, uh, but I gotta say about my nephew, Joe, he looked like a native, his pictures, uh-huh. he looked like he's like, you know, some, some guy from Rome, he's on a Vespa and he's, you know, all perfectly quaffed and <laughs> it was funny. It's like, Hey, Giuseppe. So, uh, yeah. So I, I, I have to admit to a little bit of envy. It looked awesome. And my brother, John is a great tour guide. You know, again, he's been there so much that, uh, he knows all the good places he took them to. My very favorite restaurant in the world where I had two of the best meals of my life were a restaurant in the Trastevere neighborhood called La Cisterna. Uh, The first time was in 2000 when I was there with my dad and John and my sister Francesca, the head of World Youth Day. We went over for three days and uh, four days, I think it was. And um, we stumbled on this place out of the blue. I don't know if I told this story before. I'll tell it anyway. It's it's quick. Uh, we were walking through the Trastevere, trying to think of a place to go for dinner. 
and a guy comes up to my dad who's wearing his jacket that says the West End of Boston on it. And the guy says in English, you know, with American accent, are you from the West End of Boston? You got to know, this was the thing that always happened to my dad. No matter where he went in the world, he always ran into somebody new. And he's like, yeah, he's like, my dad's from the West End of Boston. And there was this American living there. And we're like, you know, hey, that's awesome. By the way, any recommendations for a good restaurant? Always ask someone living there or a native, someone who's living there a long time for a restaurant recommendation. They'll always give you a good one. He's like, come with me. So he takes us, you know, down the streets. We come to this restaurant, La Cisterna, and he says to the to the guy at the door, "These are my friends. Please take care of them." <laughs> so we had this amazing meal. Turns out this restaurant, La Cisterna, means the well. Uh, it's built over. It's the restaurant itself is over three hundred years old. It's been in this family for over three hundred years. They it's built over a well that was in this neighborhood for two thousand two thousand years ago. Roman uh, soldiers. You, this is where they would come to take their oath of service to enter the Roman legion. I mean, this is, you know, <laughs> wild Roman history. Anyway, most amazing meal. And then the second time was when I came back for World Youth Day. We went back with a big group. And again, it was an amazing meal. So, uh, yeah, just, man, I got to get back over there. <laughs> Rome is awesome. This time of year, Rome is awesome. Rome is beautiful by now. You know, where we are, it's, we're happy if it gets into the 50s. And it's sunny, uh, like today was. But uh, yeah, it's it's already springtime over there, which is awesome. So I, they they're back, and so I was just, yeah, I was just a little jealous. So for us, what did we do today, Melanie? We had the blue and gold dinner, and I'm tired because <laughs> it was a lot. The the introverts in the family are all wa- uh, wiped out. So the blue and gold, if you're a new listener or you're not a scout family, uh, the blue and gold is a annual dinner that Cub Scout packs have. It celebrates the birthday of Cub Scouting, and it takes place sometime in the spring. Whether you know, sometimes it's in February, sometimes it's in March, but sometimes in the uh, or in you know the early part of the year. And, uh, you know, they try to make it a big deal. And we haven't had a blue and gold dinner in three years, I think, because of COVID or two years, the last two years. And so this is the first one in three years. And, um, yeah, it was it was good. They did. They went all out. We had it at the local Elks Hall and it was all decorated in blue and gold with all the scout stuff. This was the fanciest blue and gold dinner, I think we've we've been to and we've been to. Yeah. Three, I think, before or four. I think we've been to. I think three pri- previously. Uh, that's because Jenny was in charge. <laughs> yeah, Jenny is the organizer extraordinaire. She's really good. She's the the committee chairwoman, and uh, yeah, she's really good at this. So all of our kids had uh, parts to play, including Lucy, who is still a cub, and she's a, she's a weeblow, and she got her weeblow rank. And uh, but the others, their troops will be receiving the kids moving on graduating from the pack. Uh, so there's one girl that's going into the girls troop and who's the first cub to graduate into the girls, the troop. first girl to, yeah, to graduate from the pack into the girls troop. That's a, that's a big deal. And then uh, there's, I think there's like six boys. There were seven boys who were moving on, but six of them I think are going to troop 56. I think this seventh one his family moved, but uh-huh. they continued to try to take part in um, in this pack to finish out. 
Like they were coming from where I think they moved to like Bridgewater or something like that. So, uh, so he's going to move to a, a pack that's local a, to him. Yeah. A troop. Yeah. I mean, a troop. Yeah. Yeah, probably. That's, that's, that's my thought. So, but you know, six new boys, which is good. That, that troop has really grown in the past few, three years. There's a lot of boys that come out of the, uh, the pack to join them. So it's been really good. Uh, and there were a lot of really cute toddlers and babies there. Oh yeah. Which makes me think, Wow, these are a lot of potential new future scouts. The f- yes, the future of the pack. So the number one place where <laughs> new, new scouts come from is from families that already have scouts. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, although, you know, they really do need to, we need to find, you know, more cubs, bring in more new families, partly because we need more new blood in the leadership. We need. Yes. Uh, a lot of the leaders have been doing for ages. Dan, who's the pack, the pack leader, the cub master is uh, he hasn't had a cub in like 10 years. He's been doing this. He was doing it when his son was a, was a cub, but he, but his son is or like, is it like 18 or 19 now? And so it's like, he hasn't been a cub in like he's eight aged, years. He's aged out of Boy Scouts even. Yeah. Right. So it's like Dan wants to move on, but nobody's been, he hasn't had anybody. I can't, do it because you don't have the time and that's the, the case with a lot of people i can do some stuff but but i can't be cub master so we just need more new blood and new bring in new people so but it was a great time uh, our kids took part in the crossover ceremony and uh it was really nice and there was lots of food because it was a potluck <laughs> ton of food we made um pulled pork because that was nice and easy um yeah yeah it was a good time yeah but training, yes, I get it. Yeah, Melanie's going to be quieter than usual. <laughs> she's <laughs> she's rung out. Lots of noise. So it's one of the things noisy. Yes, one of the things that came out this week uh, in our house was uh, Isabella, who's the oldest, is seventeen, sixteen. She'll be seventeen. She'll be seventeen in May. In May, she's um, she's is she just finishing up a unit on World War Two history? Uh, she. She says that all of her history strands, all of her classes are converging on World War II. So the way that our homeschool program does history is instead of doing like a year of world history, a year of American history, et cetera, it does, it it spreads them out over three years. And so you do like Monday, you'll be doing world history. Tuesday, you'll be doing a reading from American history. Wednesday, you'll be doing church history. And so it's kind of staggering them. Concurrent. Concurrently. Yeah. Um, Which is nice because it kind of lets you, I feel like it lets you get a little bit deeper into things by st- spreading it over three years. Um, so both her world history and her American history um are converging on World War II. And she's also doing a history of Japan class this this term through Homeschool Connections. And it's also approaching World War II. Um, and I think her church history is also getting to World War II. So it's like, she feels like everything is converging on World War II. Now, a couple of years ago when she was in junior high, she really got into World War II, especially military tactics strategy. World War II um, or Civil War? Well, she got into the Civil War, too. But before okay. that, she was into World War II. Oh, okay. Um, she was really into planes and tanks and U-boats and artillery and tactics. But 
she really got it more, much more into strategy and tactics when she read this, got into the Civil War because she was a bit older. And so now she's kind of feeling like she would like to go back and really do a deep dive into World War II, especially um, strategy and tactics and the battles. Um, she really likes looking at individual battles and strategies and maps and, and that sort of thing. Which is ironic, given that the focus of the way we do history is is not about dates and battles, but is, you know what I mean? It's just kind it's, of funny. It's the you know, stories. Yeah. Um, so she asked me to find her some books. And the way we've in the past dealt with these things where she's like, I'm interested in this topic and I want to learn more is I will get 20 or 30 books out from the library and she'll flip through them all and she'll pick one or two books that she really likes the style of or something appeals to them to her about them. And she will really read those deeply, but she'll page through a whole bunch and just kind of do some skimming and get some ideas of what's going on. And I think it's a really great way to approach a topic. So I was soliciting um, from my Facebook friends, what are your favorite World War II books? Um and I'm hoping that she'll get some European theater, some uh, Pacific theater, some more memoirs and biographies and some more general overviews and some on specific battles. And then she can just kind of mix and match, pick and choose. Um, I know one thing that she was kind of excited about is she's really been enjoying um, Churchill's history of the English speaking peoples. And we found out that he Churchill wrote a six volume um, book, six volume books. I don't know how you would say that. Six volume history. Six volume history of World War Two, and Churchill, of course, was part of World War Two. I mean, he 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 was at the heart of all that was going on, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think she's interested in in reading Churchill's take. She one of the things that she really liked about it was she could see in the way Churchill wrote about previous um eras. His own sort of philosophy of government coming through in the way he wrote about previous leaders. And she really liked that, like insight into Churchill as well as the, his insight into history. Um, it's kind of a fairly sophisticated way of reading, I think, more sophisticated than a lot of high schoolers would who I think some of her peers who are taking the same program kind of found this Churchill dull, whereas she really liked it a lot hmm. uh, i'm i frankly would be interested in some of those books myself I've, well we, they will be floating around the yeah. house i'm sure you, you can snag some well a few years ago i asked some people for recommendations which i haven't gotten around to reading but um ambrose stephen ambrose's uh, citizen soldier was one that got highly recommended yeah that was recommended by a couple different yeah. people um so yeah th th that would be pretty good um yeah, you know, the thing I was, I've was i been meaning to do is to watching that HBO series Band of Brothers. You should watch it with Bella. I don't know. Like, I mean, it might be, I don't know. Um, it's HBO, so it could be violent and uh, bloody. I, I have to, I'd have to maybe take right. a look at it. Uh, she's she's going to be 17, so she's getting old enough where, objectively speaking, she could watch certain things, but... Into, you know, subjectively, she just doesn't do well with things that are overwhelming like that. Um, right. She she can get overwhelmed by certain kinds of dramatic tension. She's very sympathetic. Um, 
right? She does a little bit better with reading because there's a bit more distance. Um, cinema. She, the visual. Yeah. She, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it can be a bit overwhelming to her. So, yeah. So that'll be fun. So let's talk about foods that we've been making. We made two new things this week. Uh, the first is a, uh, we, I made an, a rascon pollo, a you know, rice and chicken dish uh, in the Instant Pot. And oh, was that new? I thought you'd made that before. Nope. This was a brand new one. In fact, I didn't even um, put it in the categories. Uh, this is a brand new recipe that I found. It's uh, from paintthekitchenred.com. And um, the main, you know, attraction of it is, hey, Instant Pot, <laughs> it's easier. And it was fast. I mean, it was relatively, you know, once you get the chopping of things done, the the cooking is was relatively quick. You you uh, it, it works with the boneless, skinless chicken thighs. You, you saute them in the pot. And what I should have done, I double, I did a double recipe because I always do it. I should have done a single recipe because I liked it, but the, and the kids, some of the kids were okay with it, but there was a lot of leftovers. There was a lot, a lot of leftovers. I mean, I thought it was good. It needed a bit more something, more salt. Um, Probably. And yeah, it was just, that's a lot of rice. Like I try not to eat that many carbs. And so um, it was, yeah, doubled. It was three cups of rice, three pounds of chicken. So I could have done it with one and a half pounds of chicken and one and a half cups of rice. And that probably would have been sufficient uh, because there's still leftovers in the fridge, you know, four days later. So, yeah. So you brown the chicken in, you know, you saute it in the instant pot. Then you um, add onions, bell peppers, which I didn't have any bell peppers because I'd run out. We, we I didn't get enough last time shopping for all the recipes that required bell peppers this this, this week. So uh, I used um, a jar of roasted red peppers just to try. But it's just onions, bell peppers, celery, and garlic. You cook that in there, and then you add the spices, cumin, oregano, turmeric, cayenne pepper, white pepper, black pepper, salt, and then you add chicken broth, bay leaves. Um, you add the chicken back in, which you've taken out to saute the vegetables. And then cilantro stems that you've chopped up, because the stems have a lot of flavor. You add the leaves at the end, once it's finished cooking in the Instant Pot, because the leaves would get all under pressure, would get all just disintegrate. So uh, you add the broth and the chicken back in, and then you add... Uh, a can of diced tomatoes with its liquid and you don't stir it in. I thought this was interesting. You put it on top of the chicken and vegetables. Then you put the rice in and you just gently push it down until it's submerged in the liquid. But again, you don't stir. And the reason for this is apparently so that the tomato and rice would burn on the, against the bottom of the pot because that's where all the heat is. Uh And then instant pots apparently have a burn uh, message that will like in burn error somehow. I don't know how that works, um, but the, according to the recipe, that's why they tell you to do it. And then you add in some frozen peas after the it's uh, let's see, it, it, it has a like one of those double pressure cooking periods. So it cooks, you release the pressure, you add some more things in. In this case, it was um, supposed to be frozen peas. We didn't have just frozen peas, we had frozen peas and carrot. So I threw in frozen peas and carrot. Did you did you do a second just for the a second? 
Yeah, because you, cook, you add that in and the, and the, well, let's see. Uh, to close the lid, pressure cook on high for six minutes, then release and open the pot. Oh, no, th- this was a single cook. That's right. So it really only cooks under pressure for six minutes. Because uh, I was going to say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't repressurize no. it just for frozen peas. I was thinking there was, there must have been a different recipe recently that I did the double cook uh, with. I forget what it was. But in any case, um, so it's six minutes under pressure and then 10 minutes of the releasing the pressure and then you add in the peas and cilantro, stir it up and serve. So it was, yeah, I mean, it was, it wasn't fantastic. It was good. It was good. I, I, I'd eat that. <laughs> I have been eating it. <laughs> I like it with hot sauce, frankly. Uh, I, and that's the thing is I have to make it not as spicy. And maybe that's one reason why it t- tastes like it needed more salt because the recipe envisions more heat. Right. So that could be. I, don't, I think I, I've, I've been feeling like a lot of things are lacking in salt recently. And I'm wondering if it's just me. It might be you. Like at the blue and gold dinner, I felt like everything tasted kind of flat and like it wanted salt. Huh. What does that say about me? Like, I wonder if the, if you're just needing more salt in your diet. Maybe like the, the pasta all just tasted kind of bland and flat. Well, there was one dish pasta dish that it tasted super sweet no i i I was just talking about like the mac and like basic mac and cheese recipes like Mm -hmm. and like a chicken and rice dish everything tasted not salty enough oh well i wonder yeah i i was gonna say i wonder i mean it's just we tend to a lot of recipes tend to under salt things, at least according to, you know, our, our sensibilities. Uh, and, but in fact, a lot of these cooking experts talk about that, that most people under salt because we're told, you know, you can't use too much salt. Don't be careful of the salt. Uh, and, but in fact, we're, we're gen, people generally recipes generally under salt, uh, the dishes. So I wonder if you and I have just compensated so much that we are expecting more salt. Uh, cause we don't often eat other people's, cooking that's not like restaurants if we're not eating our food it's usually restaurant food right so could be could be so that was one dish then the other dish i made uh that was new was the um shrimp pad thai this was so so they uh that was from what did i say paint paint the kitchen red.com it was the uh, arroz con pollo and the shrimp pad thai it was from um, America's, not America's, Milk Street Kitchen. Had Thai wood shrimp. So this was interesting uh, because the, the 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 recipe they talk about what you know the the way to make it taste as authentic as possible is keeping the heat in the wok high and therefore cooking small amounts at a time. Except I'm cooking for a whole family, so I have to cook lar- a lot of this. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't really kind of go by that. But um, the interesting part about it is the sauce, which uses tamarind. Well, they call for tamarind pulp, which you then put in boiling water and then press through a sieve to create a paste. Except you had bought tamarind paste. So wow. I didn't have to do that at all. <laughs> That part, I avoided that part. I just used the tamarind paste. And then that gets mixed with oyster sauce, soy sauce, and fish sauce. 
Uh, and then in some, well, you can either use light brown sugar or grated palm sugar. And I happened to pick up palm sugar when I was at the uh, the Vietnamese grocery last time. And so I just grated that up, which is not easy to grate. <laughs> it was a lot of grating. Uh, and I think, I mean, I think that really lent it that taste that I, I felt like, I know Ben loves Pad Thai, and he said it didn't taste like the restaurant. And I think that's just because it doesn't have the wake of the super hot restaurant wok. Um, but I, I felt like the sauce w- tasted pretty good. And, and I mean, everybody liked it. We ate it all up. Um, and we had, you know, it uses the uh, rice noodle sticks. I I used a, ri- a, yeah, a rice noodle that we happen to have. And... Um, Roasted peanuts. I should have chopped up the peanuts more than they were. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that was the common thing was it was the peanuts were too big, but it was pretty good. Yeah, I really liked the flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, I suggested we add some carrots because I remember the last time we made pad thai, like wanting more veggies in it. Right. We made a um, different recipe before. I also think thinking back on this. I would probably add some shredded cabbage to it to just to add a bit more shredded Napa. Yeah. And you know what? I, if it wasn't Friday, I would have added some chicken, I think. Right. Too. I've had I've had pad thai in the past, too, that had egg in it. I kind of this had egg in it. Did it? Yep. I didn't notice it. Um, yeah. I I like the flavor a lot. Um, I've had pad thai in the past that had lime. Um, uh, this this suggested that you serve it with lime wedges yeah the one thing we also didn't have enough of the jalapeno pickled jalapeno slices because those were just mm, so good yeah um no but i think uh, the general overall flavor was really good and the texture was good um i would just you know make a few tweaks here and there but i would definitely eat this again and i think sophie said she would eat it again um ben ate at least one serving i don't think he came back for more Lucy came back for more the next day. Right. There was a little left that was in a, a I, little container. I was really had to work hard to be gracious and let her eat it because I was really wanting it. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a good recipe. So I'll, I'll link to both of those in the show notes. Um, it was a good Friday recipe that used shrimp. The shrimp they called for um, was medium shrimp but all i had was the largest and they worked out uh it just meant i had to cook a little longer than it called for I mean, cooking that much a double recipe was difficult to stir and <laughs> you know the the whole thing and uh keep you know keep it from burning and all that so and it was it kind of made a mess all over the stove uh so that yeah. was kind of tricky i just i don't I don't and, and know honestly, of, that, of, a, of anything I could have done right. better. And honestly, you probably could have made more. Like, I think that if you had made twice as much, it would have got eaten. Or like yeah. a half again and as much. Yeah, I mean, a, th- a, a triple recipe, probably. Yeah. I'm not sure I could, but. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, frankly, what we need is another dish to go with it, like a vegetable or like other dishes. Side. I mean, yeah, because when you go to a. Thai restaurant, Chinese restaurant, you get multiple dishes and that. Right. I remember my favorite, like the, the Thai restaurant we went to in, in uh, Salem had like fried dumplings. Um, They were like, they had like mm-hmm. a curry inside and they were served with a mango sauce. And I absolutely adored those. I remember those. They called them golden triangles. 
they were just like little triangular You're shaped f- full of heroin <laughs> fried fried dumpling things yeah I'm, I'm sure they probably had some Thai name but I they were golden triangles on the menu all I know is I always got beef with basil because that was so good I love the beef with basil such such a good thing so that's what we've been cooking um got a couple more Fridays in Lent to uh work around and figure out what to, to the fishing. I mean, we, we could have tuna, we could have salmon, but in Lent, but we do that during the rest of the year in Lent. I kind of want to do something a little different. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we should be being more penitential in Lent and eating the blander things and save the special things for outside of Lent. I don't know. That would probably be more penitential. Probably. I'm just mixing it up. So that's what we've been eating. Let's move on to things we've been reading and watching. Uh, So let's talk about books first this time, because I finished another book. Okay. So the book I just finished reading is called Six Frigates, the Epic History of the Founding of the U.S. Navy by Ian Toll, T-O-L-L. This book came out in 2008, and I'd seen my friend uh, Jeff Miller, uh, the Kurt Jester, had read it and I was interested. Jeff is a, as a Navy veteran. And uh, so that he thought it was really good. So I, I picked it up. I, I, I love revolutionary war history books. And this starts right after the war. And the six frigates it refers to are the six first six frigates commissioned in the Navy, the president, United States, Congress, constitution, Chesapeake, and the constellation. I knew I would get that. And it was very interesting because, you know, when you're in high school, you get this sort of bland recitation. The U.S. Congress allocated funds for six initial frigates to found the U.S. Navy. And then in the 1810s, there was a dispute with the British over uh, impressment of sailors that led to the War of 1812. Oh, it was so much more than that. And it was interesting because it was almost kind of a history of the beginning of the political disputes over uh, military in the United States, because again, all this was brand new. Even political parties were brand new, but early on people started dividing into two groups, the Republicans and the Federalists. And they're not like the the Republicans of today. It was, they, they all went through several iterations before they ended up in the Republican and Democratic party. We ended up today, but the Republicans mainly Jefferson and Madison and the Southerners, who were much more about having a unified country and the Federalists. Nope. Sorry. Republicans, about a separate uh, states uh, with a weak uh, federal government. And then the Federalists were the opposite. They wanted a strong federal government and there was this push and pull. And the irony is, is that the Federalists were the ones who first pushed to, to get a Navy and the Republicans were against it, but it was the Republicans who were in power during the 1810s, Jefferson and then Madison and then Monroe that um that really used these the navy as a tool uh and brought us into war and so it was very interesting to see all of that all the debates i mean the rancor the part the partisanship the yellow journalism all that stuff that we decry today existed then in many forms so basically it goes back to the roots at the beginning yeah the more things change the more they stay the same 
but it's also interesting that you know there wasn't this national sense at the time. There wasn't this national identity like we have now. That only came about with the end of the War of 1812. And what was essentially an American victory, even though the British managed to burn the White House, the Capitol, uh, that was they we basically won. I mean, we, we the USS Constitution, which is my favorite ship in the world. I love that ship. I've been aboard and I have a flag that flew on her right here on the wall next to me. Um, <laughs> she she managed to defeat. uh Three, four, take four British. The British Navy was huge. It was it ruled the waves, right? Britannia rules the waves. And yet our six frigates versus their dozens of frigates and dozens of even bigger battleships and all the other ships like they outnumbered us 10 to 1 or more. And but they had they were fighting against France. They had the whole ocean around the world to to deal with. and our ships managed to to you know bring prosecute the war to take out the java the guerriere the you know all these all of these ships and uh and so it was really interesting to read about in how why did the constitution get the name old ironsides because Joshua Humphreys who designed these first six frigates he insisted on really building the ships they're essentially like battleships at frigate size. In fact, the British kind of accused the Americans of cheating. Like they, our frigates really weren't frigates. Like to, because, you know, the honor was a frigate would go up against in battle against another frigate. And they were kind of like, we're cheating because our frigates were stronger. Um, All's <laughs> fair in love and war. Well, I mean, that's how we act. That's how we look at it today. But back then it was much, much different. And, uh, so it was very interesting. But even before that, there was essentially this is the story of three wars. The first one was the Quasi War, which was military action against France, against the um, post-revolutionary France, you know, under the, the directors, under the reign of terror and all that stuff. So that period between the King Louis and Napoleon, that that right. revolutionary France, and we had problems with them. And we essentially went to war with them for a period of time, a naval war. And had to deal with that. And then but, there, but it was quasi because we never officially declared war. Right. And then there was the um, war against the Barbary pirates. So the in the Mediterranean, there were these city states essentially along the, the North African coast in Algiers and, um, you know, Libya, Algiers, Morocco, that area. And these states would capture shipping merchant shipping and take take the crews as slaves and all that stuff and all the european nations it was just too much of an effort to have to wipe them out so they would just pay them a ransom it was cheaper to just pay a ransom than to go to war against them um and the barbary pirates knew that they they never they never took it so far where it became uh cheaper to go to war with them than it was to just pay them off well there was I don't want to go through the, all the details, but we we decided no no, <laughs> it we're not going to negotiate now. They, we're not going to negotiate with terrorists, right? In fact, they captured one of the frigates, the the Philadelphia, and and imprisoned the crew, and that's when the Constitution came over. And there's this great scene of these this battle, and the 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 they had, we uh, 
we sent in the Constitution sent in its boats to go. They were going to sink the the Philadelphia, so it couldn't be turned against us and uh, couldn't be kept a surprise. And it's just this amazing story that should be made into a movie. And I don't know why no one's made this in a movie because the heroics, the danger, the the, the drama of it all. It would be it's so cinematic. It would be a great story. It should be told. Um, so and you know we hear the 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 Marine Corps hymn. You know from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. That's, that's this action. So it's really good. Um, the book doesn't actually end with the war of 1812. It, it kind of surveys ahead through to Teddy Roosevelt, which is kind of interesting because a lot of this history was lost until Teddy Roosevelt wrote his history and then, then um, encouraged Samuel Elliott Morrison to do even go even further. Um, Teddy wrote a history of the early U.S. Navy while he was uh, in college, actually, and then getting his law degree. He was kind of doing it on the side. And that's ended up what, what ended up, in, in essence, getting him the job as Assistant Secretary of the Navy um, in the Wilson administration. I forget what it was. Anyway, and then he resigned when the... Uh, Spanish-American War started so he could enlist in the army and uh, lead the Rough Riders up San Juan Hill in Cuba. Right. Yeah. So, um, but that's a whole nother Teddy Roosevelt would be an interesting biography to read too because he was kind of, he was he was crazy. <laughs> but um, anyway, that's a, a a lot to talk about with this this one book. Really good. It really gets into the economics, the the life of sailors. Um, just the difficulties of this of this early America, the difficulties of people getting to, of being connected and travel. And even in the like most travel, it was easier to sail a boat than it was to to. There were no roads; like the roads were terrible, north and south. Um, so it was it was a really good book. I really enjoyed it. I recommend it. So you've been reading a book. Do you wanted to talk about? Yes, um, I'm still have some ways to go but i've been reading uh sigrid unset's duology the first part was called the wild orchid and the second part is called the burning bush and it's just an it's a novel about a young man well in the first half he's a young man now he's in middle age in norway at the beginning of the 20th century um so I've read where I've read to so far. World War Two, World War One is just over, and um, he's married. He's got a couple of kids, and he's just been received into the Catholic Church, um, having grown up with a mom who rejected all religion, organized religion altogether, and his father's family belonged to the State Church of Norway. Um, and. What's really striking me is how prosaic in so many ways his conversion is. It's not dramatic. It's not St. Paul moment. It takes him years and years and years from the first sort of glimmerings of, I think this is true, to actually going through. And not for any particular reason, just like he doesn't get around to it. Like life keeps getting in the way. He's just preoccupied. It, it doesn't seem urgent to him. And then when he does become Catholic, it's, it's it's not a big deal. It's not like at the Easter vigil like we do now. 
it's just like a quiet private ceremony. And he really thinks it's just going to be him and the priest and his sponsor. And he's shocked when these two large Catholic families who he's had some contact with in the past come and they all show up and they are, they're all giving him presents and he's just kind of overwhelmed by it all. He didn't really realize exactly to what extent he was joining a community and he wasn't just anonymous, but I kind of really like the very down to earth mundanity of his conversion and of his faith life it's not these like peak plateau he doesn't really seem to have these plateau mountaintop exultant moments it's just sort of this is true and therefore i have to act on it and his his reception into the church is emotionally kind of a letdown and it sparks more conflict with his wife who just doesn't understand why he wants anything to do with this. And then he's forced to confront the reality, which is he shouldn't have married her in the first place. She was a very, very young girl when they met, like way too young. And he was flirting with her and he kissed her and she'd never been kissed before. And she said she was very upset. And she said that she had been hoping that the the man she kissed for the first time would be the man she married and he feels guilty. And so he marries her and they are completely unsuitable. She is, she is immature and she never really grows up and she's very materialist and very shallow and he's stuck with her. And so really his spiritual struggle is about this like inappropriate marriage and how to love her while not liking her. And now that he's Catholic, he can't overlook and he can't turn a blind eye to a lot of the things that he was overlooking before. He he was dealing with her in really um, immature ways, bad ways. And now he has to really take a hard look at himself and how he's treating her. And he finds he has to change, but he doesn't exactly know what he should do he knows what he shouldn't do but like how can he you know is there any hope for her reaching any kind of spiritual maturity maybe maybe not but he now feels it's his responsibility he can't just let her wallow in her consumerist materialist petty childishness um i i'm still i still have like more than 50 more than half of the second novel left, but it's really good in that it's, I feel like Sigrid Unset really understands a lot of the nitty gritty of the spiritual life when it's not glamorous, when it's not pretty, it's just humdrum and, but real. It's interesting to see that the, the book came out only three or four years after she entered the church. Right. So she it's kind of her, I I think it's kind of her conversion story. Right. I mean, and not directly, not autobiographically, but I think that it's very informed by her own conversion. Because her parents were both atheists and raised agnostic and, you know, they didn't really she didn't really practice. Although I, apparently World War One and getting married, you know, started her on the road to of faith. Right. And she had a horrible marriage. I mean, right. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I love the way Sigrid Unset writes about faith. I've read Kristen Laverne's daughter, and I read her book about Catherine of Siena, and I've read some of her shorter essays on like saints, and she's really deep and thoughtful. Mm. Um, so I thought that this would be a good Linton read, and I'm not disappointed. Although huge swaths of the book have nothing to do with faith at all on the surface like it's just ordinary life family life business and travel and but the faith is kind of simmering there under the surface because it's something that he's not he's sort of deliberately not grappling with and therefore it's there in that way that well which is very true to life which is oftentimes faith is under the surface, but people aren't dealing with it. Like they're not dealing with those questions. They're just shoving them down. Just interesting. So uh, those, that's what we're reading right now. Um, do you want to talk about uh, the movie you watched this week? I do. Uh, so I watched the father with uh, Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. Did you sit between them or on this? Were they I'm just kidding? That's an old joke from the TV show. Cheers. <laughs> Yeah, you're really funny. Uh, not just them two. There's like a, it's like an all star cast. Oh, it's a great cast. Mark Gatiss is in it. Rufus Sewell. Yeah, yeah. Image and Boots. Um, it's a very kind of small movie. It takes place mostly within a couple of apartments, and in at the very end, a room in a care nursing facility. And I think there's one trip to the doctor's office, but it's like very claustrophobic in terms of like you're inside. And I think that's deliberate. So basically it's the story of a woman whose father has dementia and she's trying to take care of him. And he is adrift in time. And the storytelling, the way they tell the story is so fascinating because it's kind of told from inside his head. In that it jumps like she'll walk in from the grocery store from the store with a chicken and then she goes into the kitchen to go like cook it. And then suddenly another woman who he thinks is his daughter, but it's not Olivia Coleman, walks in and he's like, where's the chicken? And she's like, what chicken? What are you talking about? And so you're not really sure, like, is has he been remembering the past? Like, did the chicken happen in the past? Or is where he is now the past? Like, you're really never sure exactly where you are in time throughout the whole movie. If if you're in the memory, if you're, if you're, well, what is the present? Um, there's times when his daughter is replaced by another woman and then where his son-in-law is replaced by another man. And you're like, who is this guy? At one point, the son-in-law slaps him in the face. And then it seems like it jumps and like maybe he was remembering it, but maybe it's happening now. And it's not sure which of the two men who is really the son-in-law and which of the two men was really slapping him in the face. And I just want to make sure that you said like this is a, because... We're seeing his dementia from his point of right, view. It's kind of from inside, like the unsure where you are in time 
is how it is to live with dementia where you, your your memories suddenly become real and like you know he's confused so much of the time like his daughter says tells comes in and tells him she's moving to Paris and he's like that's ridiculous you don't want to live in Paris they don't even speak English there and then she comes in like a few minutes later and he's like I thought you were going to Paris and she's like I'm not going to Paris why are you talking about that that I I have no intention of going to Paris and so it's not really clear like you're kind of confused and adrift and you're like what's real and what's not is he making this up is he remembering something that happened at one point she's she's got a husband at one point he's Anthony Hopkins is living in his own apartment and then he suddenly he's in his daughter's apartment but it's not we don't see the transition we don't see the move and then we're kind of back and forth between the two places but it's not clear if he's just remembering or he's imagining he's in his own apartment but he's really in her apartment it's very confusing and i spent a lot of the movie going wait what's going on what's real and what's not what's now and what's the past and which if and if you if you've ever dealt with a loved one who has dementia. And this was interesting because like when you're dealing with a loved one who has dementia, you know that they're in the past. They're not in the present because they're not connecting with you. Like, but you know, what's real. Well, sometimes they're in the past. Sometimes they're both in the past and in the present. It's kind of hard to explain, but right. They, they elements of the past are with them in the present and elements of complete fantasy are with them. And I felt like this movie. And and sometimes the person who has dementia both knows that they're seeing things and yet believes what they're seeing. Right. And I felt like this movie captured that sense of disorientation so well, because I was in the disorientation, trying to make sense of it, trying to impose an order and make sense out of it. And I couldn't. Like in a lot of movies where the timeline is kind of jumbled up, you can eventually go back and put them in order so that like it makes sense. Like it's told out of sequence, as we've talked about before, but there is a sequence. There is a logical sequence to what happens when. And I feel like in this movie, there isn't. Like, you can't piece together because he's not living in a logical sequence. Interiorly, his experience isn't right. that logic. So, yeah. And, and I mean, Anthony Hopkins is brilliant. Well, he won the, the Academy Award for this role. Right. For Best Actor. And, and rightly so. I mean, it was just a heartbreaking performance. I mean, there are times when he is he's horrible. He's cruel. He's rude. He's... He's a jerk. And you you feel for his daughter and you feel for the caregivers who he's abusing. And then he is in turn abused by her husband. Who's cruel to him. And he's so confused and he's lost and sometimes he's crying and sometimes he's manic. And the the range of emotions and it was like a roller coaster ride. And then Olivia Mm -hmm. Coleman is just. She loves him. She wants to take care of him. At some point, she does decide to move to Paris and put him in a nursing home because she just can't anymore. And you can tell it's it's breaking her heart to leave him. Yeah, this is a little too close to home for me to watch it. Yeah, I, I watched it by myself because I I knew you wouldn't want to. Right. And 
because it sounds very familiar to what um, my mom went through. Yeah, but it was really such a good movie. And the, the con- sort of contemplation about memory and time and reality and knowledge, it was all so good. Did you see they have a prequel that just came out? No. Called The Sun, uh, which is based on a play by the same writer. So this was an adaptation of a play originally. And it's framed as a prequel to The Father, with Hopkins reprising his role as Anthony in a cameo. And uh, it doesn't give any more on it, but it was released in November last year, 2022. Interesting. Yeah, one of the confusing things was that Anthony Hopkins' character in the movie, his name is Anthony. That would be... Um, <laughs> confusing. So that the this one stars Hugh Jackman, Laura Dern, so it you know be all star cast. So in, interesting, but um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm cu- kind of curious. He's the son of of Anthony Hopkins' character. Hugh Jackman is so. That's interesting. interesting because in this movie he didn't have a son or remember him. Perhaps. Perhaps. He he does keep remembering a daughter who it seems has died, and he often doesn't remember that she's died, and he's asking where she is, and she's he's very upset, and his daughter is just, like, torn because she just doesn't want to say, my sister's dead, she's not coming to visit you. And at the same time, she he's kind of sort of remembering the lost daughter in a sort of... She was the good one. She was the favored one. Mm-hmm. And the daughter who's taking care of him is the not favorite. And there's, there's that pain there of the comparison, like negative comparison. Hmm. This one is not as well received, which is interesting. Uh, it's only, you know, got a handful of award nominations, didn't win anything. Uh, so kind of interesting. The the son, the the second movie. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, the father was mentioned in uh, an episode of the Imagination Redeemed podcast. And I remember and then that that jarred my memory that, that I had meant to watch it. And when I was looking for something to watch, um, hmm. I looked it up. Interesting. Yeah, this came out in 2020. It's called The Father. So uh, I've just been watching my usual shows, so there's nothing new there. But I did want to talk about the, uh, as we usually do, talk about The Mandalorian and The Bad Batch. So uh, The Mandalorian episode this week was called The Foundling. And I find what I find very interesting is this season, which every episode this season of The Mandalorian was written or co-written by Jon Favreau. So this is very much his vision. Right. And so much faith, so much religion in this. I mean, the episode titles themselves, the apostate, you know, the, oh, I forget what they were, the others were, the, uh, um, what are they called? The apostate, the convert, uh, then they had the minds of Mandalore, the foundling, the living waters, uh, the, the, you know, you are now redeemed. I mean, there's a lot of faith language in and a lot of ba- baptismal imagery and, and having to immerse yourself in the water in order to be redeemed. And you recite the creed. And yeah, yeah, there's a lot of Christian overtones, even though their faith is completely not Christian. There are echoes, right? You know, the first two episodes of the season, I think, were better than the most recent two. 
um, they they were fine. They weren't knock your socks off. Yeah, it, I mean, I think that I kind of expect that in a season, not the, the not every episode can be at that high quality, that high pitch. Mm-hmm. There's going to have to be. I mean, any story, like not every chapter in a story is equally fantastic because you have to have those in between chapters which move you from point a to point b right you have to build the plot to get it to the next step and we're halfway through the season we've done four of eight episodes and this one we get uh more about grogu's past the how he escaped the temple during right, Order we, get 66. A little, we got a little flashback to grogu's past which and, was interesting including a particular jet i won't give it away but uh the people may recognize really him, liked that if you're a star wars um, fan anyway i liked too how they framed his flashback in terms of it being while he was interacting with the armorer and having almost it was almost a sort of visionary experience and she was talking about reforging one's soul Mm -hmm. and so it almost feels like he's facing his trauma and working through it there's a lot about trauma and healing in the show yeah and i feel like one of the things that's coming more clear about grogu is that he's a child who's undergrown undergone a lot of trauma I've seen several people theorize that Grogu's silence, his inability to speak, is not because he's too young, but because he's traumatized. Yeah, that's my theory. That was your theory, right. Um, I've heard other people bring it up, too. Right. I, I I, mean, there, there are times when he acts very, very babyish, and then there's times when he seems to actually be a little bit older. And I kind of wonder if some of the babyish behavior might not be regression. Mm. And, how old? I mean, how old emotionally a person is can be affected by sort of external forces. Right. And so, and because he's not human, it's hard to to get a sense of how old he's supposed to act. Right. And so I think that's one of the interesting things about his character is, is he actually kind of older, but emotionally stunted because of the trauma or is he really just, I mean, I think Din is himself kind of trying to figure that out because, well, nobody around him has ever met another member of his species. I mean, uh, Luke had met Yoda at 900 years old, but nobody know like nobody, nobody knows his species. Right. And so, like, in this episode, Din puts Grogu into sort of combat training experience and you're thinking he's way too young. And yet, Dan, of course, watched Grogu training with Luke, so he perhaps knows something that even maybe... And he's seen him confront enemies. Right. And I think that maybe he's he's sort of seeing we can't let him stay a child as much as we might want him to. And if he's going to be part of the Mandalorian clan, he, you know, weapons are their religion, so they got to start early. And even like... With you know the Tuscans, it was it was similar. The Tuscan Raiders in the Book of Boba Fett, they started young, learning how to right. So there's very interesting echoes there of the the two warrior cultures, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's also really I'm really curious to see what journey Bo-Katan is on. Yes, uh, now that she's joined the covert and has been accepted as somebody who is redeemed according to Creed. Like, we know externally what she's doing, but what is her internal 
journey? Like, what is she thinking? What is she feeling? What does she well, mean by it? Does she consider herself a member of the of the? Right. Is she oh. using them in a cynical way? Is she lost? Is she got a plan? I really don't have a good read on that, and I'm I'm I really the, curious. The end of this episode shows she's unsettled. She doesn't know what's happened to her. There's a, an event that happens at the end of the previous episode. And she's trying to talk to the armorer about it. And the armorer's like, yes, that is an interesting vision. No, no, <laughs> not talking vision here. This actually happened. And she's, I think she's trying to come to grips with, because it has, if true, huge implications for her and for Mandalore. And so what do I do with this? And are these the right people to help me with this? And as the season started, she was isolated, alone. She was literally alone in this castle with a droid. Brooding in her castle. I mean, right. She's very Conan the Barbarian-ish. It feels like a a character from like medieval um, folklore, like the the dark knight brooding in the castle. Alone. Alone. Yeah. And now a group that's accepted her and brought her in. and And yet a group that she has despised. I yes. mean, she has been very scathing She's, about the children of the watch as a cult and right um and scathing about their creed scathing about Mando's their, pra- refu- their extreme practices. Mando's refusal to take off his helmet. Well, the the covert's refusal. The children of the watch that refused to take off the helmet. Well, but that's but right. And she's been scathing of that, and now she's suddenly not taking off her own helmet. Right. Like sh- that's an that's a hundred and eighty degree shift for Bo-Katan. What does that mean? You know, it must put a real dint in dating, you know, romantic dinner dates. <laughs> well, maybe that's why they need to take in foundlings because, <laughs> because they're not getting married. <laughs> that's entirely. I mean, I would assume, but maybe that that's an assumption that married couples take off their helmets in front of each other, but maybe not. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like Quakerish, you know, because that's why the Quakers ended up uh, dying out. Not, not Quakers. Quakers, Shakers. Shakers, that's what I mean. Yeah, sorry. The Quakers are not died out. They're not died out. They're Mennonites now. No, the Shakers died out because they were all. Quakers aren't Mennonites. Those are two different groups. Mennonites started. Never mind. I'm not going to. That's a whole other thing. Anyway, the Shakers died out because they were all celibate and they didn't have kids. And so there was the only way they could grow was converts and they didn't get enough converts because not everyone wanted to be celibate. Right. I, I guess I suppose one variation on the, we don't take off our helmets could sort of be like Orthodox Jewish women don't uncover their hair except in front of their husband, in front of their husband. Right. Um, so it could be something like that, like a rule where you don't do it except in this particular circumstance. <laughs> Otherwise it's just really awkward. So <laughs> without going there uh, anyway, so that was uh, the, the Mandalorian. And then, we watched the Bad Batch episode, the latest Bad Batch called Tipping Point. By the way, there's only one more. There's one more double episode left for the season of uh, Bad Batch. Like next week is it. I'm not ready for this to be over. No, they're just getting into something really interesting. I, I, can't, I can't imagine they're going to play out this story arc in one episode. In, no, two episodes. One hour. Two episodes. Yeah. No, I can't. I can't imagine this coming. This story arc being done it feels like they kind of wasted time earlier right like like this is we're getting to the good stuff and i don't want to rush through it though i know and so um, my guess is it will be unfinished but there's we're 
at this very interesting point for the clones in general and the Bad Batch themselves and and in particular for the character of Crosshair who is in need and needs to reconnect with the the rest of his fellows that he's rejected and, and been rejected by. And so it's very interesting to see because, you know, again, we have this looming question. How do we get from where we are now with the clones to where we are at the beginning, at the beginning is rebels, frankly, or, you know, the, the, where we, where we see Rex next in, in rebels. Like how do we get from here to there? What happens to these clones? Right. Because there's a whole lot of story that we haven't seen play out. And what is the empire doing with these clones? Right. Where do they all go? I mean, because, because by rebels, there are like They're apparently gone. no clones left and Rex and Gregor and Wolf are the last, are like the last clones standing. Yes. So where have the rest of the clones gone? Right. And th- this, there's this looming including shadow. Where, where has the Bad Batch gone? Right. Including where is Omega gone? Right. Right. That's, oh, <laughs> just so much. So, and so we've got two more episodes to go. Uh, but for an animated series, it just, it's got so much depth and um, so much to it. It's really great. It shows you that animation doesn't have to be just childish. It really can carry serious drama with it. Uh, it really been, I mean, last episode, not the last episode, the two episodes ago uh, of the Bad Batch with, with Crosshair was more dramatic than anything I've seen in, in animation. Yeah, that was so it was good. pretty wild. I mean, yeah. Anyway, we we uh, we need to move on. We're uh, okay over an hour now. We want to talk about this week's gospel readings. Uh, the this week's gospel was the raising of Lazarus from the tomb, or as Father Leo kept saying, the raising of Lazarus. I did not hear that. <laughs> he, he, like not every single time, but like ninety nine percent of the time, he would say it. He would say Lazarus. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a tick that Father Leo has, but. Uh, good, good, um, good homily. He points out. He started by pointing out that the past three weeks in the gospel, we see Jesus in conversation with people, first with the woman at the well, then with the man born blind, and now with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Not so much con- con- conversation with Lazarus, but mostly with Mary and Martha. Right. And what we see, as he said, is stories of Jesus facing natural and supernatural evils. Right. In all of these. Natural evils like death, for instance, but also seeing love. The woman at the well was looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh, The man born blind was also looking to be loved. He had been rejected as a sinner. And, uh, And of course, Mary and Martha loved Lazarus and Jesus loved them, too. And so there are stories of Jesus seeing love and also. Father Leo said that love has dried up in their lives. And I liked that because it sort of mm. connected with the idea of, of what Jesus says to the woman at the well, I will give you water. And with the first reading of Ezekiel and the dry bones. And each of them also has a conversation of not just confession. There's a little bit of confession. And and he he actually had a side, you know, a tangent about reconciliation in this because he says reconciliation, the sacrament of reconciliation or confession isn't just listing sins. It's an encounter with Jesus in which he gives up, 
we, we give him our heart and he gives us his grace and sends us off able to breathe lighter. That his heart, his grace that he gives us lets us breathe easier. And it's, it's kind of interesting. It's a way, it's a way of thinking. Cause I always think of that actually, after I come out of confession is like, I feel lighter in that after encountering Jesus in that sacrament. And so I thought that was really interesting. Um, but he talks about, you know, we receive the spirit of Christ. Whoever does not have the spirit of Christ doesn't know him. But people who live in the spirit know that life is a gift and a promise. And that's the thing that Jesus is really emphasizing here. It's like life. He, he, and in fact, he says this in the midst of his, um, you know, talking about what's going on with Mary and Martha. And when he talks to the to the uh, disciples, you know, that life is a gift and a promise that there's that, that when you have life in the spirit, death is not the end. Uh, no one escapes death, but Christians understand what it really means. Death is not the end. Um, and then um, he said, he father also talked about Thomas. He says, Thomas is actually maybe his favorite one in this gospel because Thomas says to the fellow disciples, you know, Jesus says, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad for you that I was not there, that you may believe. Let us go to him. And Thomas knows, like the other apostles do, that when they go up to Jerusalem, you know, the, the Pharisees are probably going to kill them. You know, that they were, they, they're they pretty sure that they're marked for death by the Pharisees right. at this point. And so Thomas says to the to the fellow disciples, let us also go to die with him. You know, let's go. Jesus is going. We're going with him no matter what, what may come. And Father said, living in fear is a dead end. Thomas has the new life within him. He thrives. Right. Living in fear is no life at all. Yeah. So that, that was really cool. Now, you had something you really wanted to emphasize, the part of it that you thought was. Right. The, the, the line that jumps out at me is the Jesus. Now, Jesus loved Mar Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And therefore, so when he heard that he was ill, so when he heard that he's ill, read, read the actual. No, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And Lazarus. I think it's an interesting doesn't name Mary by name. So when he heard that he was ill, he remained for two days in the place where he was. Now, that to me is the most fascinating line because it's and I, I wonder how the Greek, the original Greek, if that that so therefore is really there, because a lot oh. of times the Greek. We should ask me. A, I would have looked it up before. Right. A lot of times, translators in English are not comfortable with the biblical, this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. And they want to add transitions like therefore or so, which feels natural in English. But a lot of times, biblical writers don't actually have those transitions of purpose or causation. It's this happens. And this happens, and this happens, and this happens. And so I'm wondering how much of that sense of causality is is in the, the original. In any case, I do think that there is that causality, though. Why does Jesus decide to wait? It is because he loves them, because he wants to give them a greater gift than curing Lazarus and preventing him from dying. And what he says, I think, is really key there. He says, this illness shall not end in death. And you think when you hear that, this illness shall not end in death, well, he's not going to die. But that's not what he's saying. 
he's seeing something even more profound. Death isn't the end. Because then he tells Martha a new name for himself. I am resurrection. I am life. I think that sometimes the 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 um, article in English actually throws us off because it makes it sound like he's he's speaking metaphorically when I think he's actually naming himself. Resurrection is who I am. Life is who I am. Mm. Um, and so what he really wants to show them, not just tell them, show them have them live through the experience of what resurrection means in an intimate, personal way. And the drama that acts out, like I want to use that word carefully because it's not just a drama, it's real. What he shows us here is his grief over death. That it is good and proper and right for us to when faced with death, to weep, to mourn, to feel bereft. Like he does not chide them for feeling that way. He shares in their grief, but then he wants us to look beyond that, like to live that grief, but also he knows exactly what he's going to do next. And to me, that's like that sort of profound, like that, the tomb isn't the end for Lazarus and it's not the end for Jesus and it's not the end for us, but it's all we can see. Like we are all kind of with Mary and Martha standing outside the tomb and we don't see how the story could possibly go past that moment. You know, Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And I feel like I'm often in that place. Like if you had done this, then this didn't have to happen. Because, of course, we don't see all. We right, because, don't. because even for Lazarus, even after Jesus resurrects him, he doesn't live forever. He dies again. Right. Like, death comes to all of us. Like, we are not going to escape it. No one gets out alive. Right. <laughs> and yet, it's not the end of the story. This illness doesn't end in death. That's That's really, really comforting. But it's also really hard because it means that God makes us all go through our own deaths and the deaths of those we love. But what the resurrection of Lazarus shows is that God goes through it with us, that Jesus is there outside the tomb crying for his friend. And he's just as heartbroken as they are. Even knowing what the next act of the story is going to be, death is something that makes Jesus himself weep jesus is jesus crying in this gospel is the great consolation for everyone who mourns because it shows when if you mourn someone who's died it is not a lack of faith it is it is permission to mourn when someone dies right and i think that if if we didn't have this verse i think it would have been very easy for christians to slide into a you aren't allowed to mourn when somebody you love dies because we believe in the resurrection and i think that that could have been a trap that Christians could have fallen into, like mm-hmm. pretending to deny. Well, some still do. Right. But yeah. But pretending to deny our feelings, quashing down those feelings of grief and sadness and not mourning. Well, you would, because then we just extend it to all suffering. 
oh, you know, why are you why are you sad at at having cancer? Don't you have faith? Why are you sad at, you know, being poor? Don't you have faith? And it's like, well, no, I have faith. It's still sad. It's still that that it's it's the brokenness of the world. It's still pain. It's still stark. It's still suffering. It's still loss. It it's we you know this side of the final judgment and the re, re, the reconstruction of a new earth and a new heaven. This side of that, we we will suffer. We suffer. That's just part of and that the and Jesus suffered too and continues to, like even in a mysterious way to experience that with us even while he is glorified and resurrected because his suffering on the cross touches all moments in time right it's outside of time in a way yes exactly <laughs> we are in time but but his crucifixion is not the sacrifice of the cross is present in all moments in all time in all history because it is you know in partly because it is represented on the altar at every mass um, that not a new sacrifice, but the same sacrifice. And so, you know, the, the John eleven four, this illness is not to end in death, but it's for the glory of God, that the son of God may be glorified through it. And that is why when Jesus says he loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus, he remained for two days because they, he, he loves them so much. He wants them to see the glory even though they'll, it's preceded by pain and loss and grief. Right. I mean, that's sort of the the mystery of, of suffering is that God doesn't take our suffering away, but he comes down and, and suffers with us. And loss is not, you know, experiencing pain and suffering or loss is not a sign that someone doesn't love you or that God doesn't love you. Or a sign that you lack faith, like right. being sad, even sad to to the point of being completely overwhelmed by it, isn't a sign of of a lack of faith or a lack of trust or a lack of love for God. It's merely this is what it is to be human. Right. Now, you have to avoid the other danger here, which is to say, you know, um, you've got to... Uh, believe that well it's actually the same thing but the whole you know this whole idea that just because um we know that god the son of god will be glorified through our suffering you know if we let it doesn't mean that we should embrace suffering either like that we should seek it out not embrace it we shouldn't seek it out suffering is not a good Right. It's not something we, we should inflict upon ourselves or other people in order to like experience God's glory. Like, right. One of the things I, I wanted to touch on was that um, Mother Sophia in her weekly. Um, her weekly contemplation of the gospel contem- uh, does a meditation on the phrase tied hand and foot with burial bands, his face wrapped in a cloth. And that describes Lazarus. Jesus has come out of the tomb and Lazarus somehow manages to shuffle his way out of the tomb, but he's tied hand and foot and he's, his face is covered. And she, 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 it's interesting how she extends that. She says that belief in resurrection doesn't mean we have understood any more that Martha and Mary did for all their closeness to Jesus and their faith in him. The sisters didn't understand what Jesus was doing. Um, 
I mean, she says this interesting thing. They and we are kept from taking things into our own hands and seeing what Jesus is doing. We can't take the cross from another's shoulders any more than we can shake off our own. We can't summon another out of the tomb any more than we can force our own way out. Our hands and feet are bound. Our face is wrapped in a cloth. Only God can place the cross of suffering on a person's shoulder and make it salvific. Only God can call out to a dead man, come out, and he does. And then she ties it with to the first reading, which is one of my favorite readings ever, the Ezekiel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and have you rise from them, O my people. Like, that's sort of our approach to suffering, is that suffering isn't something we take on ourselves, but we can recognize the salvific nature of the suffering that we are undergoing. Um, anyway, I just love that. All right. So next week is Palm Sunday. I can't believe that. <laughs> then, not right. then Holy Week. So uh, we are rapidly bringing this Lent to another close. Uh, and we're bringing this episode to a close. And as we do so, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Raising the Bets, including Mitchell R., Pat S., that's a Pat we, you and I both know, L. R., Julie S., and Alex S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Raising the Bets and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And that's it for this time. Find links from our discussion in our show notes at sqpn.com slash bets. That's B-E-T-T-S. Send your feedback at the StarQuest Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media. Send us an email at bets at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Follow Raising the Bets in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at the StarQuest YouTube channel, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. Until next time, I'm Dom Bettinelli. And I'm Ali Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Raising the Bets on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash stargate.